As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome back to the show. This is Justin Briley, Apologetics and Theology Editor for Premier Unbelievable. And this is Unapologetic, helping you grow in confidence in thinking through and sharing your Christian faith. Now this week and next on the show, we're going to be hearing from Lisa Fields. She's the founder of the Jude 3 Project, an apologetics ministry aimed at the black urban community in the US. And as you'll hear in this interview with Megan Cornwell, the deputy editor of Premier Christianity magazine, she's tackling some of the common questions and issues relating to race and culture that come up in those contexts. Now, this interview was originally recorded during lockdown, not long after the George Floyd killing, actually. That also gets addressed, but it's all still very relevant to our situation today. You can find a link to Lisa's ministry with the show notes and links to our own website, premierunbelievable.com. In fact, Lisa was one of the contributors to Unbelievable, the conference 2022 recently, and you can purchase the digital download of all the video sessions from this year's conference at the website. Again, that's premierunbelievable.com. It's also a great time to book in for our next online live discussion event on the 12th of July. It's a conversation on Gen Z and millennials. Are they ready to believe in God? John McRae from the What Do You Meme YouTube apologetics channel is going to be in conversation with Michaela Peterson, daughter of famed psychologist Jordan Peterson, who's got her own strong following among young people and a recent story of coming to faith herself. You can be part of that. You can ask your questions. It's free to attend. Going to be a fascinating insight into this whole area. You just need to register at premierunbelievable.com. Again, the links are with today's show. Right now, enjoy the conversation. Lisa, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to, to be here. Uh, I know it's, I thank God for technology. Uh, we're not in the same country, but we can still have a conversation because of platforms like Zoom. So I'm excited to be here. So Lisa, just, just, for, um, just for context, you are actually in Jacksonville, Florida, aren't you at the moment, which yes. is amazing. And, um, <laughs> at the time of recording this, we are, we're both still in some measure of lockdown. Mm-hmm. So tell me a bit about how life's changed for you since the pandemic started. So life has been different. I, I was traveling all the time before this. Um, and so definitely now just home, stationary. Um, in addition to that, a lot of Zoom meetings, um, a lot of uh, conference calls. Um, and it's, it's funny because sometimes you think, OK, I'm off the road. I won't be working as much. But I feel like uh, with this new reality, uh, many of my friends and I have said we feel like we're working more mm-hmm. um, than we were before. I don't know if you, you feel that same way. 
um, because there's meetings on top of meetings on top of meetings um, to try to pe keep people connected, uh, but you end up doing more work and you daily focus on your work because you're in Zoom meetings. So, <laughs> so what's your, what does your work look like on a day-to-day -day basis? What sort of things are you doing? Um, it could look like recording podcasts. It could look like uh, editing. It could look like uh, brainstorming meetings. It's just, it varies from day to day. So in terms of America at the moment, Lisa, I mean, we've been kind of watching and on the news about the number of deaths and, and um, Trump's response. How has the church been responding to, to the pandemic? Yeah, I think it depends on the different sects of churches. So I think, um, in, especially in African-American space, which I'm probably more familiar with than any other space, I would say there's a lot of aid going on. Um, African-American churches, many are becoming testing sites um, to help with people on the margins who are not able to get testing. Um, so they're really trying to be the hands and feet in this time, um, pivoting from online, uh, from in-person services to online services, um, which can be a challenge if, if the congregation is elderly. Um, <laughs> so I think everybody's kind of trying to pivot and trying to find ways in which to protect um, people. And I think really in our African-American context, it's even more challenging because we're the ones who are disproportionately affected by it. I think African-American pastors are trying to be careful in how they engage their um, parishioners so they won't put them even further at risk, but they'll also be an aid and a help. So you have churches like in Chicago, um, like my friend Watson Jones and Charlie Dates, who have created with other churches this um, co coalition to help fund where those people on the margins who can't get food, they make sure they provide food for them um, mm -hmm. during this time. So I think different churches are responding in different different ways. Mm -hmm. Another big event going on, of course, at the moment is the, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And we've been watching that on the news here and we've been we've been having our own we've had our own demonstrations in cities across the UK. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense, Lisa, why this particular tragedy has led to such an impassioned response to racism around the world? I think particularly with the George Floyd, when you see someone um, put their, their knee on someone's neck for almost nine minutes on video, it's, uh, it's no dispute to many that this is an injustice. You know, I think this is one of the times where people are saying, like they're forced to reckon with the, the, the injustice in our police system and the visual I think provided like we've seen people get shot but getting shot is kind of an immediate thing in, in most cases if you shoot a person multiple times and you can kind of be sens desensitized to it but that kind of suffocation on on camera I think really um, created a reaction into in people's hearts and like was like this is enough is enough we'll get on um later to talk a bit more about some of the issues affecting people of color but for now let's turn to your story lisa on the profile we'd like to find out how our guests grew up where they grew up and how they became christians can you share a little bit about your journey to faith yeah so i'm a pk a pastor's kid um so um i was i've been in church my whole life i was uh born on a sunday and my father was uh a minister of music. He was over the music department at a larger church in Jacksonville, Florida. And so he was on the organ playing when he found out 
that my mom was going into labor. So he rushed <laughs> to the hospital, was able to see me be born, uh, uh, saw me after I was born, and then went back to church and <laughs> continued to <play. laughs> finished his, his responsibilities and then came back. Um, so a little bit about how like my family is immersed in, in church culture and that's been my life for most of my life. Um, got saved during my teenage years and I almost I always say if you grew up in church, you get saved multiple times uh, <laughs> because of every youth revival, they're like, uh, rededicate your life. So you have like, a whole bunch of rededications and you don't quite know which one took all the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my faith really became my own when in college. Um, I never quite questioned why I believe what I believe. I was immersed in church culture. I was in a Christian bubble. My parents taught me the Bible. My friends came from a similar background. Um, so it was like never, oh, this isn't true. It's kind of like, I just, of course it's true. Um, I didn't have any reason to question it until I got to college and I took a New Testament course really just to sharpen my faith and thinking this would be like Sunday school, but it was a, just a regular secular university, it wasn't a Bible college. So I didn't realize that New Testament at a secular university was different <laughs> than Sunday school learning New Testament. And so I had no frame of reference for that. And so the first day of class, my professor said, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. And I was, that's, at that very moment, I was like, I don't think this is going to be like Sunday school. And uh, she really challenged me. And I, was, I really went into like this crisis of faith. Like, do I really believe the Bible? Like, can I trust it? Um, it was so many different authors. Like, the t we used the textbook from Bart Ehrman. And so Bart Ehrman is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and he tries to discredit um, the authority of scripture. And so he always talks about the dating and he pushes the dating further out. And like, I'm starting to question because I had never thought about these things at all. So it all came like at me at one time. And so my dad, through that experience was like, well, you should check out apologetics. And so I started listening and it really helped me navigate the questions that I was dealing with. As I got into apologetics, I was like, well, I don't see really many people of color. Um, I, and I didn't see any African-Americans. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to do something to bridge the gap for African-Americans in apologetics, because I think a lot of just majority culture apologetics was missing the questions that African-Americans were having. And what kind of questions do you think that those those are coming from the, the African-American community. How are they different from the questions that are being asked by other groups? Mm -hmm. So classical apologetics spends a lot of time on proving the existence of God. Um, and in the black community, atheism isn't usually something that's thriving. Um, it's on the rise, but it's still a slow rise in our communities. So most black people believe God exists. It's where is he in suffering? And then in light of the cultural, um, the cultural um, impact that racism has had and how the Bible was misused in slavery, like where was God during that time? Mm -hmm. um, is Christianity a white man's religion? Um, and so those all came from the manipulation of scripture during um, the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, antebellum slavery, and all of, all of those things. And I guess I've heard people say that because there are so few, well, 
maybe not in the in America, but certainly in the UK, there are so few black theologians mm-hmm. that that you don't get um, even the kind of the body of theology to refer to if you're asking those questions, and it's mm-hmm. just or it's considered a sort of niche area. So I think it's quite difficult for people. That's that's certainly the conversations I've had with with people. Yeah, and I think when when we think about like the black theologians, I think there are many more than we even know. It's just that they aren't always platformed in a way mm. that others are. And yeah. so um, one of the work, some of the work I've been doing is making sure we platform those people who, mm. who don't have those platforms. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. So tell me about how the Jude 3 project came about then, Lisa. You, you talked a bit about, you know, your own personal journey, but I guess there's a big, a big leap between, you know, initially seeing that there's a, a gap and there's mm-hmm. a need to actually establishing, you know, a big successful organization that you now run. So tell me a bit about how G3 Project came about and how you got it off the ground and, and a bit about what you do now as, um, as in the role of kind of heading that up. Yeah, and I'm shocked that I even do that. I, I spent most of my life wanting to be a stockbroker after my fifth grade teacher made us play the stock market game. And I was like, man, when I grow up, I'm going to be a stockbroker. I'm going to work on Wall Street. I'm not going to be in ministry at all. I'm going to go to a mega church and just sit in the back because I had been involved in church life my whole life. So I was like, this is how my life is going to be. I even, when I was, funny story, in college, I was dating the guy and he told me that guy had called him to be a pastor. And I broke up with him just because of that. That was how anti-being in ministry I was. <laughs> but God had other ideas, presumably. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, and so... Um, so taking that class really shifted me. So I switched from financial invest, uh, finan- financial investment major to investment finance major, I'm sorry, to uh, PR and religious studies. Um, and I only chose PR because I, could t- I had a lot of free courses in which I could take as many religious studies courses as, as I wanted because our school didn't have a major, but they had a minor. But I took enough classes to have a, a a major because there, I had a lot of free electives in that major. And so, um, and my parents didn't want me to just get a religion degree. They wanted me to have something to fall back on. Um, so I chose PR and religious studies, not thinking they would ever work together, but I use them every day now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in Tampa. And so then strangely went into banking after college, got a job working as a banker for Bank of America then went into mutual funds for Merrill when they uh, merged with Bank of America. So yeah. I did that for two years. And then I was still teaching apologetics courses at my, my father's church. And one of the church mothers was like, when are you going to go get your master's? You're really good at this. And that was about the end of June of 2014. Is that 2014? No, 2012. That was the end of June, 2012. And from that moment, I just felt the Holy Spirit tugging on my heart. And so the only school that had open enrollment was Liberty University, which I didn't know really much about Liberty. Um, And that's a whole nother uh, conversation in itself. Uh, But I was like, well, I'll just, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. So I I quit my job on faith, packed up and moved on a whim to Lynchburg, Virginia. Because I felt like that's what God 
wanted me to do. So not knowing anybody, that's what I did. And then the last year of seminary, uh, 2014, I started the G3 project, just a website, not knowing really what God was going to do with it, no formal business plan. And really just, it grew over time and to what it is right now. So tell me about some of the um, incredible stuff you've been doing with G3 project. Tell me about some of the most exciting projects you've been involved in. So um, two of the most exciting projects that we've done is our HBCU tour, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, in which we hold these forums um, to um, challenge students on this false narrative that Christianity is the white man's religion. Um, and we, we started it because we were hearing from students that that was big on their campus and they didn't really know how to engage or defend their faith. And so I thought it would be a good idea to have those type of apologetic forms on Black college campuses that really are neglected in the apologetic space and so that's what we did and we've done multiple schools over the last several years I'm excited to that's why I'm so excited I would be so excited when this corona stuff is over because I love engaging with students on college campuses (laughs) and I mean they're like well we can do virtual but it's just not the same interaction (laughs) um And so in addition to that, we had Courageous Conversations, which is our annual conference in which we pair Black leading conservative scholars with Black leading progressive scholars on topics like they, um, on topics like justice, sexuality, the authority of scripture, um, reaching Black millennials. There's a whole gamut. Uh, We've had 13 conversations Um, in person and we did several virtual ones before we even had the conference and so those are two of my favorite projects Um, and also we are rolling out we rolled out our curriculum we have an online course but we're trying to roll out an online academy so that'll probably be um, my third favorite project once that's launched. And so in terms of that question Lisa you know is Christianity the white, white man's religion how do you even go about answering that? Um, I always start when, when engaging a person one-on-one is why would you feel, why do you feel that way? Cause a person usually has experiences, um, that feed that. And so I want to hear from them, like, what is their, their starting point with, with mm-hmm. that? And even in forms, we try to do that. So in our, um, on-campus form, we start with a thing called talk back, where we let the students tell us why they think that before we even start the discussion. Because I feel like that's important to listen. I think the biggest thing we could do as apologetics, apologists is be good listeners. And so um, listening well is important for that question. And then usually it's some personal trauma that goes along with that question that needs to be engaged first before you get to the information. Now, I could just, many people just like to throw information on people, but I don't think that's always the wisest thing, especially when they have trauma that is the root of that. And so Mm -hmm. if you engage the trauma first, you have a better, um, you have a better chance to actually engage the idea um, and helping them transform, help transform their thinking in relationship to that. Just to sort of clarify, when you're talking about trauma, are you talking about things like racism? So racial trauma, um, having microaggressions um, in church from white parishioners or just understanding the history of racism in America and the church. And so people bring all that with their question. And so engaging that I think is, is first. And then once you engage that, then you move to information. I try to push people 
further back in history to look at early African history, knowing that the early church fathers were African, Athanasius, Tertullian. And so people that really shaped our Christian doctrine were African people. And so helping people see that, I think, helps combat that that narrative. And are you seeing a lot of people respond and a lot of people coming to faith through your work? Um, sometimes it's immediate. Um, many people come and they're about to walk away from Christianity. So the first one we did, one of the guys uh, got up and he during Q&A, he was like, I'm here because I'm on the verge of walking away from Christianity. And I felt like coming here may give me some reason to stay. That's really a big pool of people <laughs> that we've, we've been ministering to. It's kind of like that Jude pulling some from the fire, that passage in Jude. And I feel like our ministry definitely pulls more young adults from the fire than anything. <laughs> young adults who grew up in church and they're like on the verge of leaving and they run across our ministry and then they're like, okay, this is clarifying for me. This is helpful. And so, um, yes, we do have some people come to faith, but also I think an, that would be 50%, but the other 50 would be those who were literally pulling from the fire. That's really interesting. And what is it, what are, what are the, the driving factors for those people? What's pushing them out of churches? So I think their experience in church, uh, if you grew up in church, you could see the hypocrisy and you could get tired of it. Um, one of the things is, I think for millennials and Gen Z, is seeing their parents be so um, engaged in church, but it not um, change their personal attitude towards them or others. So they're like amazing in church, but horrible at home. And so it's kind of like, if you go to church all the time and you're doing all this and you're a public success, but as a parent, you're a private failure, I don't want that faith. So I think that's a big portion of it them seeing understanding the history of Christianity in America is also a factor um and I think also just trying to find peace so there are really uh five p's I call them pain points that I think people are really looking for in this day um as it relates to faith they're looking for personhood which falls under identity protection provision power and pleasure um that might that's six uh but <laughs> I think I added the pleasure uh, recently, but <laughs> the personhood, protection, provision, power, peace are the essential ones. And then people are also looking for pleasure, but the main ones are the first five I mentioned. And I think when we get to the root of many people's questions across racial lines, that's at the root of most of it. And so I think we have to show how the gospel um, meets those needs in order for them to see relevance in this space. And going back to talking about racism again, because I think there are some people that, that actually say, come off it, this racism doesn't exist in the church these days, we're in 2020, you know, all the rest of it, or, or who, who kind of refuse to see or, or, or believe that there are differences between people. Do you think there's racism in the church? Um, and if so, how do you think we can combat that? Yeah, so I definitely think there's racism in the church. Um, I think, um, there's structural and institutional racism. There's not just individual racism, but there's structural and institutional racism. And I think um, one of the ways we combat that um, is, well, three ways. We listen, we lament, and then we legislate. And when people think of legislation and policies, 
that's also, you know, government policies, but also we can think of legislation as how we work within these systems that have, in these denominations that have their own kind of government and their own um, rules and laws and how they abide. And we could see how can we dismantle that? Like you, you think about the Southern Baptist Convention and how much of their funding came um, from slave owners, um, their initial funding. And so what can we do to, to act justly in those situations? How can we make things right? Um, how can we put laws in place in our own organization to, to rectify that? So I think those are some things we need to, we need to do. But I think the listening part is really necessary because I think, you know, many Christians aren't good listeners and myself included. I have to work to listen. It takes work, especially when you're knowledgeable about a topic because you want to show off the information you've learned. You want to make sure people understand that you're, you're knowledgeable on a particular topic. So it takes work to just be silent and to listen without being defensive as well. So I think the church has to work on listening to those on the margins without being defensive, without, mm -hmm. if, if I say there's systemic racism to not necessarily mean I'm calling you yourself a racist. Like, you know, it's so much, the defensiveness, I think, keeps us from moving forward. I was recently watching Michelle Obama's new Netflix documentary, Becoming. And in that, she said that of all the disappointments and the challenges of her time in the White House, the thing that had caused her the most trauma was the fact that voter numbers among the black community had remained so low. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is disengagement from the black community when it comes to politics? Mm -hmm. I think because... Um, we haven't seen much, the needle move much in our communities. And so if, if there's no actual like effect from us doing the work um, in the systems, then it, it's like, well, what's the point? I think it's kind of like throw up your hands, kind of like it's not going to help anyway. And so I think if we saw some, legislations that deeply impact the community that make the community better it's it, it motivates people but people are tired of seeing republicans get in democrats get in and the condition is still the same and so if the condition stays the same then it doesn't motivate people to get out there they want people want to see tangible results and so i think that's that's one of the things so do people feel that even under obama their, their situation didn't improve yeah, I think some do. I think some do. Um, I think others might feel differently. Mm -hmm. um, I think within, as far as the wealth gap, the wealth gap is still there where, you know, it is what it is that the black community is still is disproportionately um, affected um, in, in that space. So there's still a huge gap um, and wealth in black communities more so um phil visher the uh creative Ve veggie shows just released a very good explainer video on the wealth gap which i think will help people and is really helpful like black wealth in america is usually generated by home ownership and because there were laws in place and redlining and and government legislation that kept um, black people out of the home ownership game um we were that created a a wealth gap and so um, I think understanding that really will help people to understand why 
we still are in the condition. We will pick up this conversation between Lisa Fields and Megan Cornwall again next week when Lisa will be talking about some of the challenges of being a black woman in the world of apologetics. Hope you found today's show hopeful. You can email your thoughts to me, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, whatever you agreed or disagreed with on the show. And you can find more from the show and our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering gets you a free ebook, bonus content, and much more. And we'd welcome your support for this ministry as well. And if you can rate and review today's podcast on your podcast provider, it'll help others to discover us too. For now, thanks for being with me and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.